0: Good morning. Welcome to Chapel. Burnin'. Well, you guys have made it through homecoming, and we've made it to midterms. Everyone feeling okay about midterms this week? A little tired, sensing some tiredness in the room? Well, a couple announcements for us as we as we begin our time together. Um, quick, quick announcements. Tonight, um, the women's volleyball team has a home game, so be sure to support them. We have the fall musical, their last performances are this week as well, showing Oklahoma. And also today we have some guests on campus over in the Student Center. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Gideons before, um, but they're actually on campus over in the Student Center and they'll be distributing Bibles um, to anyone who might want one um, for the semester. I'd also like to introduce our chapel speaker for this morning. Today we have Reverend Mark Holcomb. He serves as the university chaplain at Olivet Nazarene University. In addition to his role as chaplain, Mark teaches courses on youth ministry and Christian ministry. He is the program director for Olivet's Master of Arts and Master of Ministry degrees in youth ministry. Um, He is a graduate from Olivet University as well as Nazarene Theological Seminary. In 2002, he received the Timothy Award honoring his 23 years as youth pastor and through the years has also served with Global NYI Council in a variety of capacities. He has written devotionals and articles for Barefoot Publishing, and he writes for Holiness Today. His personal interests include reading, playing basketball, cycling, spending time on the beach, and taking walks with his wife Terry, who is also here with him this morning. They have um, a daughter, Kristen, who lives in Houston, Texas, with her husband Luke, and they have four children: Braden, Bradley, Bella, and Boone, sticking with the B names, I guess. And um, their daughter, Kelly, lives in Wheaton, Illinois, uh, with her husband, Chris, and they have two sons, Jackson and Oliver. So we are honored to have Reverend Holcomb with us this morning. Would you please join me in welcoming him to chapel? (laughs) If you would stand with me as we pray um, and enter into God's presence this morning. Lord, once again, we come before you so thankful, um, Lord, to be your children Um, to be gathered in this place together as a community, um, feeling a sense of your support, Lord, as we gather together and knowing, Lord, that you are here with us. God, we celebrate um, just this time in the semester, Lord. You've brought us um, halfway. You've led us through homecoming and many of the festivities. And Lord, as um, students are in the midst of midterms this week, Lord, we do ask that you would just um, give them a sense of your um, strength and discernment. And energy, Lord, as they move forward throughout this week and the semester. And so, God, we come before you as a grateful people this morning. I'm here to worship you. Lord, may you calm our hearts and our minds, um, ease our worries, that we might spend this time, Lord, focused solely on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. I bring you greetings from the land. I know you, what, what's your name again? The, the Marty McFly reference here, too. Yeah. I was telling them before the service that there's two guys in Chicago that wear the, they've been seen everywhere in the city together. One has a number 20, the other 15, and on the 20 is a Marty, and on the 15 is McFly because this is the year, at least in the, as the movie goes, that the Cubs win the World Series. And you guys probably already know that they're not cooperating. Um, and so I'm going to go back to a city that's, even though I mean, it's possible, right, Red Sox fans? I mean, it's possible to be down 3-0 and come back. Yeah, but we're the Cubs, so yeah, you know what that's like. Hey, this is where it all started for me. I don't know whether you realize this or not. It's, this is a fun place. If, if I think of any of our sister institutions, this is probably the one I think of most because my folks attended here. My dad grew up at Akron first. My, ma- my mom grew up at Chicago first and didn't want to go to the school that was only forty-five minutes south of her, and her dad had worked for Delta Dental, and had been on Long Island for two years, and so she got a, a little bit of a taste of the East Coast. So, Jack Holcomb and Sandy Rosema came to school here, and uh, I think it was one of—I the, I don't know. My dad was roommates with Merritt Mann, who some of you might know, and it wasn't long into that first semester, maybe the first day, that my dad saw mom walking across cafeteria, and. I think he told you that that was the girl he was going to marry, and, and I'm here because of that, so thank you, ENC, yeah, because if that wouldn't happen, I wouldn't be here, and so we went down to Walliston Beach where my dad said they used to walk yesterday by the clam box, and uh, I've, eaten, I've eaten my fill of fish and chips since I've been here, because they call it seafood south of Chicago, but it's not really seafood. Anyways, uh, I, I am, uh, as the introduction uh, shared with you, I'm a grandpa. I'm a grandpa six times over. Um, my daughters don't mess around. Um, my oldest is 31, and she's got four kids. Just Boone is uh, two and a half months old. Is that right, Terry? And Kelly has uh, a five and a two-year-old, and Kristen's are eight, five, three, and two and a half months. How'd I do? My wife, Terry, is sitting right here. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's appropriate. So I'm, I'm having a lot of fun these days with my kids, except for the fact that my daughter, one of my daughters, the, the one with the four grandkids lived in Houston, Texas. That's a long ways from Chicago. My other daughter lives in Wheaton, which is a suburb. So we get to see uh, her and her husband and her two kids quite often. Um, not Houston so much, but um, we're having a lot of fun. But to get to this point as a dad, I can't always say it's been an easy road or a fun road. Um, my daughters believed in expressing their freedom in a variety of ways when they were growing up. Uh, They're normal. They were normal kids uh, for both of them, but this became most obvious in their driving. Um, There's nothing like getting behind the wheel for the first time, is there? To feel the freedom, um, the sense of energy that you have behind the car, pushing on the gas pedal. You know what I mean? I remember what it was like the first time I got in the car, especially by yourself. And uh, I don't know how that worked for you. Um, I hope it went better than my oldest daughter. See, my oldest daughter's kind of clumsy. She couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. And so we were a little concerned as she approached the age of driving with whether she would be a good driver or not. She was a great kid. She didn't really kick us. She wanted to please her parents. She was a typical first child. But when it came to Driving, we were a tad concerned. I'll come back to that in just a second. One of my favorite authors is Eugene Peterson, and he wrote a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And in this book, there's a word he uses called congruency. And uh, just to get a handle on that word, I thought for us today, I'd look it up in my Randy Random, uh, trusty college Random House dictionary, and, and this is what it says. It says corresponding or harmonious. It, it's, it's, it's a math term that's used, right? Congruent. On a math equation, things balance out. This side is the same as on that side. Now, that's as far as I'm going to go with my math illustration. I took math for dummies in college, so it ends right there. But getting back to what I'm trying to say, when speaking of what we say, how Peterson uses the word congruency, this math, math term, it's, it's how we speak about ourselves, And the things that we say about who we are matching up with who we really are. In other words, what we do matches with who we are. Now, let's go back to my daughter and her driving skills, her mad driving skills. It all began one afternoon for me when she couldn't drive by herself, but I went and picked her up from driver's education, right? Now, can I just say something right off the bat? Because some of you might get ticked off that I'm doing this to my daughter. Let me just tell you. I provided the cars for the demolition derby that you're about to hear. Okay, so you can just set that aside. Father's rights. I paid for her insurance. Okay, so you can just put file that away somewhere else because I don't have to pay her for rights to tell this story because I lived it with her. So coming back from Driver's Ed, you know, um, and we came up to this intersection. It was a busy intersection, and it was a left turn, and she was trying to be cautious and careful. And except there wasn't an arrow. At this intersection, right? So, and she decided to turn left on a green when there were cars coming rather quickly at us, okay? And you know, when you're on the passenger side and somebody goes left, whose side is it? It's my side. They're coming at my side. And all I remember is me saying, go, 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 go. And, and then she kind of got through the intersection, and she was a typical, you know, 15-year-old. She was a little peeved at me and didn't think I trusted her and, you know, went through the whole litany of things that 15-year-olds do with their dads when they're learning to drive, right? Well, it was about three months after she had received her license, and I was actually standing in the kitchen of our home talking to my wife on the phone when I heard this loud earth shattering crash like it sounded like somebody's gas line in our neighborhood exploded that's what it sounded like some natural gas explosion I remember I told Terry I said I got to put the phone down something just happened and I have to go see what it is so I walked out through our family room into the garage the the door to the garage was through our family room to see I, I couldn't see the front end of our car because she had driven it through the wall in our garage And she's sitting in the front seat of the car like this. And she got out of the car, and the first thing out of her mouth was, don't yell at me, Dad. Now, now let me just say, let me just tell you this. If you try to park your car in the family room of your home, the first thing out of your mouth when your dad walks into the garage, probably you might want to choose words better than don't yell at me. Because to be honest with you, I really felt like doing some yelling. And but I, I composed myself until I looked at her and I said, "What happened?" I mean, she ran in. It's, it, there was a closet there. I mean, no big deal. That's only where our furnace and our hot heater, our hot water heater, were. Right? No big deal. She just about took out the hot water heater. The legs on the hot water heater, that suspended off the floor, were bent. I had to bend her back. I said, "What happened?" And she said, "I sneezed." <laughs> True story. I said, You sneezed. How fast were you going coming into the garage to sneeze? And I'll come back to that in just a second. But she said, Dad, Dad, seriously, I sneezed. It was an accident. You don't have to worry about me. I'm a good driver. Seriously. Well, those are two things. All right. I'm not. Three days later, three days later, I get a phone call in my home. And this is what comes out of her mouth Dad. Hi, sissy. Dad, it's not my fault. I said, What wasn't your fault? Dad, the sheriff told me it wasn't my fault. And I'm thinking, Oh, the sheriff told you it wasn't your fault. What's not your fault, sis? Now, Dad, they told me it wasn't my fault. What wasn't your fault? I hit another sheriff patrol car head on. Where are you? She told me where she was. Washington and Midhoff are one of the busiest intersections in Indianapolis, Indiana. So I drive down to Washington and Midhoff. Now, here, here's something you need to know, too. If you ever are in an accident with a sheriff patrol car, every county sheriff shows up. They come from all over the place. They're like ants coming out of anthills. So I pull up to the intersection of Washington. There are nine patrol cars. Have all the traffic stopped at this intersection. I park my car, get out, and he says, can I help you, sir? I said, and, and Kristen's sitting in the middle of the intersection, Indian style, with her head in her hands like this. I said, that, that one right there is mine. She said, all right, come on in here. So I said, what happened? She said, Dad, it wasn't my fault. And I'm like, how is this not your fault? And the guy came over and said, sir, can I have a talk with you, please? And I said, sure. She said, it really wasn't her fault. And I'm like, wow, okay. See... The gal who was the sheriff, sorry ladies, it's just the story. The gal who was the sheriff, it's her first time driving in nine months. Nine months earlier, she totaled a patrol car and she went through an intersection and didn't have her siren or her lights on. So your daughter made a legal left turn. And, and so my daughter's sitting in the middle of the intersection. She goes, see, I told you I'm a good driver. Well... That one we'll forget, right? Although aside from totaling a car, getting caught going 75 in a 45, running over chickens on her way to school, to the point her sister's riding in the car, right? And she's going down probably 80 miles an hour down these back country roads where you always hear of a kid in an accident, right? And her sister's sitting in the car with her going, Kristen, there's chickens in the road up there. Kristen, there's chickens in the road up there. Kristen, you just ran over chickens. So the next day, Kristen goes to school. You know how you meet with all your friends in the hallway? And she hears one of her friends saying, you're not going to believe what happened, man. Somebody took out like three of our chickens yesterday, and then they didn't even stop to tell us about it. And Kristen just kind of goes, oop. And she decides she's not going to be a part of that conversation on that day. I mean, there's true story. There are... Ten more besides that. But the one, the creme de la creme, the one to take the cake, was about two weeks before she was getting married, Terry and I are in Dallas, Texas. And we get a phone call, again from our youngest daughter. She's just come home from work. It's about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, which when you get a phone call and you're away and your two girls are home by themselves, it's kind of, it scares you a little bit. And so here's Kelly on the phone. Hi, hi Dad. Hey, Keck, what's up? Dad, um, there's a gasoline hose sticking out of Kristen's car. And I'm like, a gasoline hose? What do you mean a gasoline hose? She goes, oh, uh, you know, Dad, kind of like the ones you put in the car to put the gas in it at the gas station? Yeah. Well, it's sticking out of Kristen's car. And I'm like, really? She goes, Dad, why would I make that up? All right, Kelly, I, I don't know. So I said, put your sister on the phone. So, sister, you know, Sissy gets on the phone. I said, Kristen, do you have a gasoline hose sticking out of your car? No. I said, Well, I don't know why Kelly would make that up. So, do you mind going and looking to see if there's a gasoline hose sticking out of your car? So she goes out, comes back in. I could hear her pick up the phone, but she's not saying anything, right? And so I just kind of go, Well, yeah. Yeah, what? Yes, there's a gasoline hose sticking out of my car. And I'm like, well, call the gas station. You know, I have this idea. I didn't know they were snap off gas. You know, the gaskets, they were snap away. And so they, the gasoline, I have this picture like of the, you know, the, like the surveillance camera and the gasoline station's blown up. And they, they zoom in on my daughter's license plate. And they're saying, if you see this car with this license plate. And so I'm like, well, you need to call the gas station. She goes, I'm not calling the gas station. I said, no, you really need to tell them what happened. No, I'm not going to do it. So I mean the best thing that I was able to do at her wedding 2 weeks later was to look at her husband and say her in, she's now on your insurance and she's now driving your cars because but congruency Where do you see a lack of congruency in these stories? I mean all the way along in every situation because the 75 to 45 when she was driving 75 and the 45 she looked at me and said it was my fault. I don't know how that happens you like, I'm in the car pushing the accelerator, making the car go 75, and, and Kelly said she was going 80, which if you guys know, 31 over is reckless driving, you lose your license, right? So Kelly's like, Dad, the sheriff was nice to her because he could have taken her license away. But that was my fault too. She was all the way along, convinced she was a good driver. Well, I don't think, I mean, I, I could tell you more stories. I'm not going to more for my sake than yours, but I think you can see we have a problem here. Kristen's saying she's something that she's really not. And now she drives four of our grandkids, and we pray for her every day because she's driving our grandkids around. But congruency, saying we're something and living it. Being balanced and consistent in our lives. Having integrity for who we are. Well, what does this have to do with us? Well, it's kind of like what I think we do too often We claim that we're something or someone that we're not. Or maybe put another way, we say that what we do doesn't really define who we are. We we hear out there, you know, we, we, we hear out there, right? We hear out there all the time these stories of these people that are involved in behavior, destructive behavior. I could name names, but I'm not going to. You can think of your own Characters that you want to put in the blanks here and we always hear this, but they're such a good person. This is just isn't who they are Well, I have a question when when does what we do? When is what we do connected with who we are? When does it matter when does when does that give any definition to who we say about ourselves or what we say. I was just teaching a, a, a class, the, the class that I teach a couple weeks ago, talking about a person acting inappropriately on our campus. And their argument was, well, that's not really who I am. Well, We have nothing else to base. You know, what do we do with this? How, how, do, we, how do we consistently say, well, that's just what I do. That's not really who I am. Incongruency. It's the same thing my daughter did the first five years she was driving destroying two cars along the way, all the time saying, you don't really have to worry about me, I'm a good driver. Isn't the best way of knowing what someone's like or who someone is by observing behavior? Isn't the way our character is betrayed and our hearts are betrayed by what we do? So it begs the question then, does how we live have anything to say about who we are? I want to read a passage of scripture for you today that... That you guys are probably familiar with, if you've you've heard this story, it's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. But I want to look at it from a little different perspective today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 25, verse 31, or I think they're even in your pew. Um, I'm reading from from the New Revised Standard Version today. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate people from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left, and then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come. You that are blessed by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that We saw you sick or in prison and visited you. And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those on his left hand, You that are cursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me naked and you didn't give me clothing, sick and in prison. And you didn't visit me. And then they'll also answer, Lord... Well, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he'll answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's an interesting story that Jesus tells the paragraph's titled The Judgment of the Nations, and for our sake I want us to focus on two questions that are consistent from both sides. One of the ways that you look at parables in, in comparing things is look at, look at the things that are similar, and I want us to look at a similar question that both groups ask, this when question, because it bothers me. It troubles me, actually. It's interesting to me that neither the goats nor the sheep um, knew when they were or when they weren 't doing anything, they both asked the same question when the ones who are gathered the ones who are asked to gather in to come and be blessed by the Father to take their inheritance, the kingdom prepared for them since the creation of the world, the righteous ones they look at the king, baffled almost saying. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? When? When did we do these things? It's kind of odd question, don't you think? Wouldn't you know if you were putting clothes on a naked person? I mean, honestly, wouldn't you know when you were feeding the hungry or taking care of the homeless? Wouldn't you know when you were doing those things? but according to the story that Jesus tells they have no recollection of the times when they were doing these things i think uh, you know oftentimes we look at this parable and we see it as a mandate when neither groups knew what they were doing honestly and and check out the goats those who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels the same set of questions almost identical aren't they Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? When didn't we do those things? They're both asking the exact same question. That's troubling for me as a person who seeks to live faithfully in the way of Jesus. It's troubling to me that the sheep and the goats, neither of them understood There's something really peculiar going on, and I think it gives me insight into what it means to truly be a person of the kingdom. And that is this. The ones called righteous didn't know they were righteous. They couldn't answer the when question. They weren't keeping score. They weren't tallying the number of homeless people the fed, the number of cold people they'd given their coats to, the forgotten ones they visited, the prisoners that they had gone to see... But I think it's because part of this kingdom that many in this room say we're a part of, these things just become a natural expression of who we are. In other words, they live selflessly because they weren't selfish people. It's just an expression of who they were, what they did betrayed their hearts. For them, there's no other way to live. If you see a need, you have the resources that God has placed in your hands to meet it, and you just do it. You just act. You just live to the point where at times you don't even know. But the opposite is true then too, isn't it? Notice what the king says to the goats, that they're cursed. And why does he say they're cursed? They're cursed because of what they do or what they don't do. In other words, what they do or what they don't do defines them. So what we do does betray who we are. So go ahead, call yourself a good driver. When you try to park in the family room of your home, you might have a difficult time convincing people that you are. You might have a congruency problem. Or when people see you driving down the road with a gasoline hose dragging behind you, you might have a difficult time convincing them that you're attentive to what's going on around you. And I think this leads us to practices and habits habits that make us people of faith. You know the thing that really bothers me um, about the GOATs? is the the sheep, I mean, there's a part of me that's comforted from the fact that I don't have to keep score, that I can just live, that as God shapes my heart, it just becomes a natural expression of who I I am. Right. But the goats obviously have blind spots. The goats don't know. We can say the sheep don't know they're sheep, thanks be to God, but the goats don't know they're goats. They don't know they're selfish. That scares me. That bothers me. If I'm selfish, I want to know. If I have blind spots, somebody please tell me what those blind spots. Somebody help the boy. <laughs> right? So practices and habits. What does this do? I think this has everything to do about who people of faith are. It's about taking ownership for who we are. So, so when what you do... When, when what you do is on display, and I mean, I, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but have you ever done something and you look at what you've done right in front of your face and you go, Ooh, is that really me? That's not, that's not who I want to be. That's not what I want to do. That's not how I want my life to be defined. So we have this amazing opportunity in moments like that to, to live into this practice called confession Henry Nouwen says this about confession, that through confession the dark powers are taken out of carnal isolation. I love that. Brought into light, made visible to the community. Through forgiveness they are disarmed and dispelled. In other words, they no longer hold power over me. They no longer hold power over you. And a new integration between body and spirit is made possible. What does it mean? It means our lives can, through confession, be brought back into balance so we can be the people that God is making us to be. What I like to say, we discover who we were created to be so we can do what we were created to do. Paul instructs us to confess our sins to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that we do an open mic, right? We've all been squeamish in moments like that. But listen, I need people speaking into my life that call me out on my blind spots. I mean, sometimes, you know, uh, I I have had to confess to my wife. I've had to confess to my children. I've had to seek forgiveness for ways that I have fallen short of living the life that God calls me to live because I know that's not who I want to be. I know that's not the person he wants me to be, and it's not the person I want to be either. John Ortberg says this about confession. Confession is not just about naming what we've done in the past either, but it also involves our intention for the future. So there's this great passage in James that I think helps bring clarity to us as, and, and as we really begin to think about what God is saying to us. See, I have a fundamental belief. I think I'm up here talking and yammering on, but I believe that the Spirit weaves in and out of these pews Revealing to you what you need to hear in this moment. I don't have to do what the Spirit does. If you do what the song admonishes and you open your hearts and you open your minds, I believe the Spirit's faithful. And in James, I want to read from the message. It says this, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides, because you know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open, showing its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. I love the picture. Faith life forced into the open, showing its true colors. I think that's what happens to us all the time. It's what's happening in the story of the goats and the sheep, true colors on display. What they do, betraying their hearts, who they really are, whether they want to own up to it or not, isn't the issue because they're living it in front of everybody. So what happens when what we do is acting in a way that's Consistent with our character, like what I've said, where the things that I've done, when I hold them in my hand, I just kind of go, Ew, that's really me. We have this amazing opportunity from this God who loves us, right? This good Father who loves us in the way that He does to come at Him with hands open and say, Forgive me, and give me the courage to seek forgiveness. From those that I have hurt, when who we are is on display by the way we live, it just gives us this incredible opportunity to enter into living lives of confession with people that we know care about us, with people that we know are as concerned about us faithfully in the walking in in the way of Jesus as we are. Those are the people that I want to surround myself. I don't want to mess with this. This is too important. I have to surround myself with people that I know genuinely care about this with me as much as I do. So I do, and I give them permission. So we have a choice. We can make excuses of who we are, or when our true colors show, we can confess. We can own it, and we can ask God to make us the person that he wants us to be. So I guess the question for us this morning, when we're shaken, when life kind of comes along and our true colors spill out, you know, like taking a, if you take a bottle of Pepsi and you shake it and you open it, Mountain Dew doesn't come out, right? Pepsi does, right? When we're shaken, what comes out of us is who we are. And this passage of Scripture, this Scripture of the sheep and goats, this passage from James invites us into this amazing privilege in living in this relationship with a God who is a good father longs for us to come to him with open, open hands saying, forgive me, I confess this to you, I confess it to you for the ways that I fall short. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, here we are. And we do believe that you are a good God. But we also believe that a good father does discipline his children. We also believe that a good father doesn't leave us where we are. Our good, a good father longs for things that are better for us. You don't want us wallowing in pig pens. You don't want us going back to our own vomit, so to speak, because you teach us, Father. But I pray that you help us in moments like this when true colors show, when we have to see in moments, who we really are, when we find in those moments that it's inconsistent with who you are and inconsistent with who you want us to be, Father God, I pray that you would help us to own it, to confess it, and to live in relationships with men and women who want to live in that way as desperately as we do and can help us along the way. Call us to confession. Help us see our blind spots, leading us more faithfully as we live in the way of Jesus, believing it's what you want us to do. So, Father God, as only your spirit can do, in a moment like this, speak for your servants are listening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. I believe you are dismissed.